apologies. Maybe um, Kevin has given me the, a great privilege uh, to be reading the scriptures as well. You know, I've got to tell you, uh, I've got to say, every, every pastor who's uh, called up to preach, they, they're always a little envious that they didn't get a chance to read the Bible, but someone else has. But here, because of Kevin's little slip, I'll be able to do the honors for us, because here we go. Um, and I love reading the Bible. I think it's one of the things that um, is, is really awesome. Uh, so turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, starting from verse 12, and I will read down to verse, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this as the very words of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue to be to, to and will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of God. Let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the model and the example of your servant, the Apostle Paul, whose writings from your own breath we have inscripturated for us here in his letter to the Philippians. Thank you for the tremendous encouragement 
that we received in the mere reading of it. But now, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me as well as I explain and teach from the Scriptures. And not only so, but that our hearts may be receptive to your word, that we might ever more grow in confidence and in glad knowledge of the love you have for us and the power of your good news to make it through in this rebellious world. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, in this last session last night, I hope that you saw that in Philippians, uh, Philippians, in a nutshell, this is my summary, of course, you may have your own, but in a nutshell, Philippians is Paul's letter of joy and thanks at their partnership in the gospel and at the power of the gospel to complete the believer for glory before a rebellious world. And last night, we saw more the partnership side of things in the opening greeting. For that, uh, for that is where true joy springs. It springs from deeply invested cooperation. And we saw the reason why we can have this joy at all. And that is that God will finish what he has started. And because he will, Paul prays aboundingly and constantly for maturity and flourishing of love. And so can we. That was last night. Today, this morning, in this text, we see more now about the <clears throat> power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Now, what do I mean? Uh, well, when I, when I got ordained as a minister at the Presbyterian Church, uh, one of the things I absolutely didn't realize what I do a lot of was to write references for folks in my church. Uh, we had parents who wanted to send their kids to private schools and Christian schools and, um, and, and tenancies, and, 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 these, and these people needed character references from their church minister as part of their enrollment. Uh, and after writing a few of them, they all started sounding a little the same. You know, so-and-so came to this church, they're, they're members in good standing, we love them here, and, and they all sounded the same. Next person came along, so-and-so was a person in good standing, the members uh, who came to this church, and we love them here. They all just started, started, they all started sounding the same. And so what I started to do was just, I had to just, I honestly, I just had the same template for every person, and each new person, I just put a different name on and just changed the name each time. But see, they couldn't ask for just a regular person with a character reference. No, it had to be the minister. You see, even though I'm the same schmuck that I was before I got ordained, my words came now with great power, great gravitas, with cachet, do you see? In fact, I, yeah, that's it. There you go. You see, there are words which on their own wouldn't accomplish much except for the power and the authority which comes from it. See, there are words and messages which come with terrific power. There are words and messages that come with great strength. Why do you think that in um, social media these days or in Twitter, you know, people we've seen, like people that we respected, get canceled? We've seen people get taken off and being um, barred and banned because their words had come with power, even though they're just one schmuck, but they're influential. 
And now, because of you know, Elon Musk taking over Twitter again, all these people are starting to come back now. And so it just goes to show that what we say and the words that we use actually comes with great power. Friends, let me tell you, or let me ask you, what is the power of the message of the gospel? What is the power of the message of the gospel? You see, many of us, um, perhaps, I, I hope, know the gospel or at least the very basics of the Christian good news. And yeah, there's always more training and experience that we need to gather our words and our thoughts better on how to tell others about Jesus. But let me ask you, do you actually know the power of the gospel? To charge you. Do you know the power of the gospel to change you? Do you know that when you step out in faith to share your life and your faith, you're not and to share the gospel, you're not just telling people about Jesus, but that you are riding on the wind and the strength of God's power and purposes. You are His ambassadors. You're His emissaries. You're His agents. Do you know this? Because if you don't, you're not going to understand Paul here. Uh, you don't understand the surface of his circumstances. You're not going to get into his deepest drive, his inner motivations, his inner motives. And here, more than any part of his writings in this letter, he goes as deep as it gets. For here we see what gave Paul strength. Deep, deep down was the power of the gospel. And today you can have that as well. Three things this text teaches us about the power of the gospel. First, it teaches us the power of the gospel to advance through opposition, the outlines behind me the power of the gospel to work through mixed motives, and lastly, the power of the gospel to revolutionize life and death itself. That's where I'm going. So first then, the power of the gospel to advance through opposition. And we see that in verses 12 to 14. Now, like we said at the last session, the Philippians were Paul's joyful and adorable church. It was the first church Paul planted in Europe, and they have been his most loyal and long-standing supporters. So it made sense, right, for Paul to update them on how he was going while he's in prison, right? Unique to this letter, Paul's very um, report is up front, okay? In, in other letters of his, his report is often at the back. Here it's actually noticed at the front. And notice where the attention lies in this report. It's not in his own situation. And it's not even in his physical needs, right? You know, uh, prisons in ancient Rome, they were a different thing altogether. They're not like your silver water jails or anything. They, they, the prisons in ancient Rome, they allowed supporters and friends to come in with food and supplies. And that's actually how prisoners were fed. They didn't have prison food. There was no such thing. But notice that Paul's focus, Paul's focus wasn't on any of that. He just wanted to assure them of one thing. Do you notice it? Here it is. That his situation has really turned out to advance the gospel. The ESV has it correct, actually. Your translations actually has it right. It actually, really, the word there is really, as in it's really served to advance the gospel. In other words, right, rather than suppressing the gospel message, Paul's imprisonment has resulted in the gospel to ring out all the more widely, to spread. How? 
Well, first, it's hinted there right at the next verse. Look at, look at verse 13 with me. Paul says, finger on verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul did not see himself as a prisoner of Rome. He may have been in Roman chains, but who was he a prisoner of? He saw himself as a prisoner for Jesus. And what Jesus wanted Paul to do was to get in, to infect, and to reach others for the gospel. The imperial guards couldn't get away from Paul. Think about that for a second. I mean, some of them, these guards had to be shackled to him day and night while Paul just continued yakking on about Jesus. Could you imagine how insufferable that would have been for the imperial guards to be, uh, what a frightening ordeal it was for the guards on night shift to be next to Paul? He got in. He was, he was there. He, he slipped in. He made it. But second, right, out of, the, um, out of his example, out of Paul's example, listen, more and more Christians were emboldened to preach the gospel. Look at verse 14 with me. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, friends, isn't it true that one of the absolute axioms of all movements is that you don't squash a movement. Here's what you, you really learn this about social grassroots movements. You never squash the movements by taking out the lead guy. Uh, if you guys remember in Les Miserables, the musical, when they're in that cafe planning that revolution and Gavroche comes in and suddenly announces that General Lamarck is dead and they start singing that song, do you hear the people sing? They say, they're saying before that, they're saying, you know, Lamarck is dead. Lamarck, his death is the hour of fate. The people's man, his death is now the sign we await. You see, far from being intimidated by Paul's imprisonment, the Christians in Rome became far bolder. They were stirred up, bolder to preach the gospel without fear. As a side note, I think it's probably the case that maybe one of the reasons why we're not as courageous in spreading the gospel is that we just haven't had many martyrs. But if someone did, that, that'll rouse up people for sure. Now, why might they fear? Why would they bolder to preach the gospel without fear. Why might they have feared in the first place? Why was Paul's imprisonment be a cause for fear? Have you ever asked yourself that? Well, you've got to see something, I think, about ancient Rome, the Roman Empire, to really get the danger. You see, the word gospel in, ancient, in the ancient world wasn't a religious term, actually. It wasn't even a spiritual term like we use the word gospel today. No, the word gospel in the ancient world actually meant good news. It was actually a term you'd use for a victory announcement, a military victory announcement. So say um, an army general uh, conquered and defeats an enemy city. The announcement of his victory would ring out through all the land where he would now have new jurisdiction. And that news would be a gospel, a euangelion, a good news, a gospel. Now, they didn't have newspapers back in those days. They didn't have emails, of course. So ambassadors and emissaries would go out and they would announce the good news of his victory. This is now who is in charge, you see. 
I mean, in an age before telegram and internet and all that, that sort of stuff, I mean, you'd have like cities out the outliers. You didn't even, wouldn't even know that a new king was actually now installed until a guy on a horse just came and told everyone. You know what I mean? That was the gospel. That was a good news. And so the Roman people and the Roman soldiers at the time, they were used to hearing about a gospel, of course, but it was the gospel of Caesar, wasn't it? Uh, here's the new, he is the new emperor who has taken the throne. And now peace and justice flowing out of Caesar will now rule the land. It's what the Latin speakers call the Pax, Ro- Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, including, of course, Philippi, which I said last session was akin to a mini Rome. But now, and here, the imperial Roman guard, they had a man in their custody a man in shackles, in chains, who had a very different message. They had a very subversive. He had a very subversive message. And that a very different man had now taken the throne. Not just of Rome, but of the entire world. And this king was, in fact, a Jew, not a Roman. And that he rose to the throne by dying on the cross. And for some reason, three days later, He rose back to life, and he was seen upon by hundreds of witnesses. And now, by his Spirit, he is calling upon every man and woman in the polis to bow the knee to him. Now, you've got to think about this. How ridiculous that would have sounded in the ancient Roman world, where Caesar is king. How treasonous, indeed. I was talking to one of you guys just last night about the regime in North Korea and how, you know, North Koreans, we just had a a, a defector actually come join our church and started telling us about all the regime that went, that goes on. You guys know a lot more about this than I do, I'm sure. But one of the things about North Korea is that they they don't celebrate public holidays like we do. They celebrate the President's Day. Basically, these guys worshipped as a god. And so you definitely know that you were, if you were against this man, if you had a Bible in your hut, it was effectively a death sentence. And now all of a sudden, imagine, imagine in that regime, someone comes along and claims to be a new king in that country. It's like, that's an absolute death It's absolutely scandalous. And here's a similar thing. For the first time, this man in prison, Paul, was talking about a king who was not King Caesar, who was not the emperor. But under the true God of all, look what Paul is doing. This gospel now, this very different gospel to what the Romans had, this very different gospel was now making inroads despite the very worst opposition. And it's spreading without a single sword being lifted. Imagine that. Without a single drop of blood being shed only by the word of his proclamation. That's powerful stuff. And it was spreading like an infection that the Romans could not contain. And not just despite the worst opposition, but precisely out of the very worst opposition. You jail the man, more of them just spring out. So, question. Do you think that was just so back then? Let me tell your friends it's happening every day. Uh, As you guys know, I'm not. uh, I mean, I was... was I grew up in Australia, but I was born in Hong Kong. I'm actually from Hong Kong. And news reported last month, actually, that communist China is cracking down on Christianity now more than ever before in China. It's rewriting the history books, rewriting the Bible, calling Jesus a sinner and all that kind of stuff. 
Because when they tried to do this in the past, when the, when, the, um, when the Chinese government tried to suppress Christianity in the past, the churches in China just kept growing. There are actually more Christians today now in China, more than in, in all the members of the Communist Party put together. That's four times the population of Australia, mind you. Isn't that astonishing? These Christians meet in churches all over, like Beijing and attics and offices and parks and basements. And, and, and I've spoken to one of you guys about this as well just, last night, just yesterday. See, it's happening to this very day because that is the power of the gospel to advance through opposition. And listen, one more thing before we move on. Be, be very, um, one more thing. Be very watchful how you regard the sovereignty of God in your life. See, we often tend to use this idea that God's in control of our individual life's circumstances. And they're, frankly, pretty much often to do geared towards middle-class comforts. You know, I, I, like, for example, I didn't get this job because God gave me a better one. It turned out for my good. Or I didn't get my kids into this school because God gave us a better school. It really turned out for our good. And yeah, of course it did. And of course it is from God. But I want you to learn something of the gospel-mindedness of Paul. You know, here's a man who's in prison without a single concern about his own well-being. He was simply concerned with the advancement of the gospel. So the question is, how about us? How about you? When will the time come when you say, what has happened to me really served to advance the gospel? What has happened to me now has been suckier than when I ever was before. I'm on a lower rung than I have before. I'm more humiliated now than I've ever been. But hey, it has really served to advance the gospel. Friends, is that something that you can say? So here then is the power of the gospel to advance through opposition, from opposition, but to, second point. We see the power of the gospel to work through mixed motives. And we see that in verses 15 to 18. And here now Paul moves on to address something that he felt the Philippians were just going to ask him. Because it appears that while a lot of Christians were emboldened to preach the gospel more widely, there were some, it seemed, who went around talking about Jesus who don't really mean it. Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ, you, you look at that, from what? Envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, question, you're probably wondering as well, who are these thugs? <laughs> who are they from? Well, some scholars think that these are Baptists. No, I'm just joking. Um, I grow <laughs> Yeah, I got you. I grew up in a Baptist church. I can make that joke, all right? No, some, some think that there were rival ministers who were jealous of Paul's ministry. Others think that these are just former friends of Paul whose friendship turned south. Now, I hardly think even former friends would do something as cruel as stirring up trouble for Paul in prison. That's a very strong way of putting someone down. No, more likely, I think, is that there's no particular reason why this group actually needs to be believers 
at all. The word rivalry there, it says in the Greek, is, is more accurately the, the term for strife or contention. So all you really need is just a group of troublemakers for that, pagans, thugs, you know, talking about, talking about the gossip, the latest fuss on the street. You know, did you know there's been a strange fellow going around saying there's a new king and he turned out to be a Jew who died and now he's the king of the world, you know? All that would do, see, is just make people feel that Paul was some dangerous lunatic who should be kept locked up. And if that's true, well, <laughs> Paul had actually no qualms about that. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Verse 18. Well, what then? <laughs> Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Now, friends, I want you to pause here for a moment and just think and just reflect on how remarkable this is. See, many of us, I suspect, would feel pretty good, pretty annoyed, actually, if we were misunderstood, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you feel pretty annoyed if you were misunderstood, especially from our colleagues or even more so our friends? But if you weren't just misunderstood, but you were cruelly played on, mistreated, right, by someone else, you wouldn't be annoyed. You'd be mad as. If you weren't just misunderstood and played, but your whole safety was jeopardized, your whole well-being was jeopardized, and you landed in prison with the very real possibility of being executed because of what others have stirred up about you, wanting to put you there, you wouldn't be simply mad. You'd be fuming, wouldn't you? You'd be white hot with anger. But here, I want you to notice Paul's response. What's his attitude? He rejoices. He's full of joy. And you've got to ask yourself, why? And here it is. Because he could see the power of the gospel work through mixed motives. Paul was so confident that the gospel can do its work despite ulterior motives, that he's willing to be put in danger so that the gospel will be preached. Now, some of you guys know that I'm, a, I'm also a wedding photographer, a wedding photographer on the side. And in wedding photography, a lot of times it's about getting that perfect shot, that perfect shot. And, and I had no idea before photography just what that meant until I actually got into it, right? Friends, that itch for the perfect shot, <laughs> there's me actually leaning and putting my life on my second shooter, um, will make you get into the most awkward and uncomfortable positions. I found myself lunging forward to degrees that I didn't even know that my knees could bend. I mean, I've had to stand perched on a ledge five meters high, no more than this, with, on, no, on a ledge no more than this thick. I had to lean over a cliff with a 30-meter drop just to take a photo. Why? Because I absolutely wanted to get that perfect shot. And Paul here is saying the similar thing. What does that matter to me if I'm danger from thugs and danger from this, wanting me to, people to stir up trouble for me in prison? I'm after the perfect shot for others to hear the gospel. That's what he's saying. And because they're going around preaching the gospel, that is just fine by me, Paul says. Not a problem. Now notice what he is not saying. Paul is not saying that mixed motives are okay or that is excusable. And he's not saying that it's acceptable to have ulterior motives in Christian ministry so long as you're preaching the gospel. He's not saying that. 
No, instead, he's saying that mixed motives will often be the reality. There'll be those who might seem to be on your tribe, but aren't. And yeah, God can use those people too to accomplish his plan and to proclaim his gospel to the world. And we can see this today too, can't we? With this whole debate today on, uh, on schools being taught ideologies and ethics about sexuality and gender. We've had one of our own ministers from Cornerstone actually take up the fight, in fairness, in opposing this invasive education of young children, young students being caught uh, in the press as well in the process. Now, of course, gender and marriage, they're not the essence of the gospel, but nevertheless, it's opened up pathways for the gospel to be heard and a biblical worldview to be defended. I was just listening to a podcast just yesterday on the way up here, and, um, and, it, re- and it reminded me, because it was referring back to, you remember, remember when the year when the Da Vinci Code came out? Do you remember the Da Vinci Code and, uh, and how, this, how this fabricated history, which right now they wanted to paint as reality? And the Da Vinci Code was certainly like an attack on Christianity, like a lot of Christians thought that it was um, selling myths, right, to people about Jesus and the Lord's Supper and Mary Magdalene and all the rest of it. And, I, I, and then I actually remember that about 15, 20 years ago when this book came out, more than 20 years ago, I think, um, uh, Christians were just up in arms um, about, um, about the damage that this would do to the credibility of the Christian church. But then I also remembered that Christians at the same time, they held seminars. You know, they were just debunking myths, you know, because they, they, use, they even used the attack of a false teaching as an opportunity to preach the gospel. You see, opponents are just opponents at the end of the day. Under God's sovereignty, his will will go forward. So listen, friends, do you have that kind of attitude where you're willing to be misunderstood and maligned and be, lo- and be all like, who cares so long as Christ is preached? How important is your reputation, is your safety and your comfort that you'd sooner defend those things than you would defend the gospel? Hmm? Well, why is the gospel worth knowing then, hey? What is it about the gospel that's worth proclaiming and defending? And here now we come to the last point, point three, the power of the gospel to revolutionize life and death. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, like I said at the start, each, each point that Paul makes in this text takes us deeper into his uh, innermost being, Paul's innermost being. I hope you've seen that. He started by talking about his external circumstances. He started by talking about his chains. And then he goes on to talk about his internal circumstances, his reputation, these mixed motives. But when you ask how any of these make sense to Paul, it's because of what's going on deep down in his very psyche. And it's this. You don't get more core than this. The power of the gospel to revolutionize life and death itself. Now, previously, Paul had just said that he doesn't really care whether it's false motives or true that the gospel's preached. But now he says, in effect, that he doesn't really care whether he lives or dies. Now, a lot of people take verse 19 as confidence that Paul would be delivered, that is, delivered from prison. But it's a little more ambiguous than it seems the more you read it. Because in verse 20, if you look at verse 20 with me, 
Paul makes the claim that whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted. See, in other words, it seems that Paul didn't really know which way he would end up. But similar to the previous point, it also doesn't really matter from Paul's own point of view. And then we come to the core reason why. And it's in verse 21. So look at verse 21 with me. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the flesh, then that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is by far better. And convinced of uh, but it is more necessary for you that I actually remain. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Now, what's Paul saying? He's saying that he doesn't actually know how he'll end up, and frankly, he doesn't really care. There's only one thing that Paul cares about in his life, and that is Jesus and to make him known. You know, a lot of Christians have this as their favorite verse, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. But I'm pretty sure that we have not thought about this nearly as much as we should. What does Paul actually mean by this? What does Paul actually mean by this? Well, firstly, to put anything in front of the sentence, to live is is basically saying what your whole life is all about. And you can fill that up with pretty much anything. But there are only a few things which I think comes to us in an ultimate sense. I'll just take three of them now. The first is your identity. That is, what is it you do to define your whole life to be? What is it that gives you your greatest significance in the eyes of God and for yourself? Is it being a father? Is it being a mother? Is it a career man? Is it an industry leader? Is it being a free spirit? Because your identity gives shape to your life. Your life is shaped by how you identify your worth and significance. But second, the second thing you can fill it in with not just identity is in terms of your satisfaction. What is it that is that will truly satisfy you? That if you thought that if you just had that, my life will be complete. You know, if you're waiting, uh, one of the ways that you can tell the test is that if you're sitting, standing at a bus stop, waiting for the bus to come, and you've checked your phone, and you've put it back in your pocket, and you've got nothing else to disturb you, and your mind wanders towards something, what is that something? Because if you, ha- if you had that in abundance, you will be complete and secure. You'll be satisfied. What is it? Is it money? Is it a stellar education? Is it worry that's been on your mind? And if you just relieve yourself of that worry, you'll have that satisfaction. What is it? It could be in the negative as well. What is it for you? So there's identity, there's satisfaction. To live is what? The third thing, I think, is actually longing. Longing. That is, your longing gives you your ultimate hope in life. What you really live for. What you can't get, perhaps here. But it's what your heart's been aching for your entire life. For a lot of people, that stuff is deep down. For a lot of people, you can't actually see it. You can't even see it for yourself. It goes deep, deep down, in, in other words. But it surfaces in so many different ways. It could be your longing for validation. It could be your longing to matter. It could be your longing for, uh, for love. 
to love and to be loved, to be in another person's arms. It could be just a longing to be understood, a really deep longing that for your whole life, no one has really, really, truly understood you. No one actually has really taken the time to validate how you're feeling and what you're thinking. It could be that. See, identity, satisfaction, longing, these are the kinds of things that you would put in front of to live is. Because that's what you end up living for. But I want you to notice something. Look at Paul. See, for Paul, there was only one thing, one man actually, one king, who would fill in that gap, that blank. Someone whom you don't have to build an identity for, but someone from whom you're given an identity. Someone who gives you the identity, not you making one for yourself. Someone who, for Paul, was the ultimate satisfaction. So much so that it's even better to depart this life and to be with him. Talk about satisfaction there. Someone in whom all ultimate longings are fulfilled. Every thirst is quenched. For as he himself once said, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. The one who drinks from the water I give him will never be thirsty again. Don't you see? That is why Paul could say to live is Christ. And to die, well, that's just gain. Don't you see how revolutionary that is? This is the kind of revolution that revolutionizes life and death itself. See, the world says, the world says that if you live life to the fullest, if you live life to your fullest, then that's the best life you can have. And death is, well, we just don't talk about that. We keep, we keep death at an arm's length. We have hospitals and medicine to keep death as far away as possible. But Paul is saying that if you live your life apart from Christ, you haven't gained your life. In fact, you've wasted it. In fact, this is your best life now apart from Christ. For to live is Christ. And if you see death as a thing to be feared or avoided, well, you don't understand the very privilege it is to be in the presence of this king, your one true longing. You see, for Paul, life and death has gone topsy-turvy. That's why it's so torn. He honestly doesn't know what to do. He'd rather die than to be with Christ, for that's by far better. But hey, for the sake of the Philippians, he'd rather stay alive. There's more work to be done. See, I wonder whether that's your perspective in life and in death. That because of the gospel, the true gospel, even death has lost its sting. And your presence with Jesus is guaranteed for all eternity. And because of the gospel, your life, your identity, your satisfaction, your longings, they are all met in, in, in him. All that matters, therefore, is just making him known. For that is the power of the gospel to revolutionize life and death. In closing, friends, I want you to think about this. See, why are these the power of the gospel. You know, the power to advance from opposition, the power to uh, work despite mixed motives, the power to revolutionize life and death. Why are they the power of the gospel? Well, it's because these points, these distinct powers, they are actually the very pathway of the gospel story itself. You see, what is the good news of Christianity about? What's the story well, the story of the gospel is a story of the ultimate triumph out of the ultimate opposition, sin and death. So read what 
Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, God has made this Jesus, he says at the day of Pentecost, whom you crucified, both Lord and King. Boy, talk about victory out of opposition. The Romans and the Jews, they nailed this man to the, to, to the cross. Opposition, right? Three days later, he rose from the dead. And now the whole Christian movement was kick-started. Talk about victory out of the greatest opposition of all. Plus, the story of the gospel is the story of God's salvation at work, despite mixed motives. No, indeed, the very worst of motives, murderous motives, as Jesus Christ suffered in the hands of the religious establishment, the Romans who made him out to be an example, even in the hands of one of his own disciples, betrayed 30 pieces of silver. Talk about mixed motives, friends. Talk about the very worst of motives. And finally, the story of the gospel is the complete revolution of life and death. He died in our place so that we don't have to. By his stripes we are healed, Isaiah says. So it is through dying to ourselves that we live, and it is by living for this world that we die. And because he lives, let me ask you, friends, have you grasped the power of the gospel? Do you know its power to charge you to change you, so that even chains are not even chains. They're nothing because of the power of Christ to raise you from sin and death and this world. I think that's that hymn verse that says, um, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So what are the, see, what are the chains of Rome? What are the chains of death or the chains of your sin? When the power of the gospel breaks through each one, do you know that power? The power of the gospel. Let's pray. Loving Father, we do thank you for this uh, very deep word here in Philippians where Paul himself opens up his innermost psyche that we might understand what it is that truly drives him that he was not riding of his own strength. He was not concerned about his own well-being, his circumstances. Instead, he had a completely different paradigm of understanding life itself. He understood the power of the message of the gospel and its power to advance and break through opposition, despite the very worst opposition, despite its despite the very worst of mixed motives that he saw all around him, people who would tease and taunt him. And he was glad that the gospel would still make its inroads throughout Rome. And we thank you, Father, that, that he was absolutely resolute and that he could give his life in, in, in service, just like how Jesus Christ did so for us. Because we know that through the gospel, Life and death is revolutionized forever. So, Father, I, I pray that in our lives as well, and, and also in the discussion time to follow, we would be able to see uh, the chains for, in our lives as, for what they really are. They're just chains. They're nothing more. That the power of the gospel breaks through each one. And I pray, Lord, that it'll give us confidence, that it'll give us great cause for rejoicing, that we too might become those people and the church that brings the message of this powerful gospel into and through this rebellious world. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.